This week on the show, we talk about the J-language porting work on OpenBSD from Brian Callahan, the comparison of FreeBSD's Galley and OpenZFS encryption by Rubenert. What is FreeBSD actually? A couple of questions, we were discussing that. And OpenBSD's pledge and unveil for Python is also what we have in the show, as well as OpenBSD-related topics in the episode called BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 424, unveiling OpenBSD's pledge, recorded on the 6th of October 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash BSD Now to get the online backup for the truly paranoids. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to a fresh episode of your favorite BSD podcast. Well, are there any others out there? Uh, we didn't check. So <laughs> we start with headlines that connect nicely into our previous episode that a lot of people uh, have heard and got uh, sent us feedback to our interview with Brian Callahan. Thanks to Brian once again. Uh, the headlines go, I got the J language working on OpenBSD. So this is on Brian Callahan's website. So this is, uh, if you, in case you haven't seen it, his, um, you know, his blog is also his uh, CV and some code and some extra stuff. And so he has this article here and he writes that, yes, I'm aware that I am interrupting our self-hosting PL slash zero compiler series, but I think it will be worth it. So earlier today, and uh, is there a date on this? Oh, it's 11th of September, so roughly a month from now. Uh, but yeah, close enough. Earlier today, I got the J language system running on OpenBSD. I find it important to write these up because it helps me preserve my own knowledge of what I did. And hopefully it will help others porting languages to their favorite BSD. That's what we talked about in the interview uh, from last week. So yeah, that was... I just yeah. wanted to stop to take a moment to, to appreciate that. You know, as you're doing a project, any kind, if it's just setting up something for the first time or the hundredth time or whatever, if you write the steps down as you do them and just throw them up on a website somewhere, that can be useful to other people. But more importantly, it can be really useful to future you. Oh, yes. <laughs> you know, you'll remember most of how you did it, but you'll forget, you know, the solution to the one niggling problem or whatever. And it is so valuable, even just to yourself. You don't have to publish it if you don't want to, but just publish it um having notes on what you did is so helpful because you know other times for me it's even just been i wish i remember what order some of this stuff happened in when i'm writing about it later you know after a, a longer project that maybe i spent a year on or something feel like i wish i remembered more of what i was thinking at the time a while ago and if i had written more of it down then i'd be able to explain how my thinking evolved as i went through the project but also just you know what the steps were the things i tried that didn't work the things i tried that did work the little nuggets i found that you know this is the thing that made it all make sense for me that kind of stuff is really good to just write stuff down mm -hmm. yep documented for yourself and uh you can get inspiration by Dan Langell, who has done this for years for himself and it's searchable everyone can find it and i got a lot of stuff from his blog so oh that's how he did it and that's how i not should or should not have done it so there's plenty of stuff to to learn there okay back to brian yes, well, you know the, the, one of the great things dan remembers to do with that is capture what the system looked like before he started too because that can really help explain 
why it worked for Dan and it didn't work for you because there was one subtle difference in the preconditions or whatever. Mm. Anyway, sorry for the digression. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> Once again. Say, um, thank you, Brian, uh, Brian, for actually remembering to writing, writing all this down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... You can tell the academics probably <laughs> in here, but that's it's good to document it in any way you like. So area programming languages. Yeah, I guess that comes back to my one other favorite saying is, you know, the difference between screwing around and science is writing yeah. it down. <laughs> okay, so he writes that J is an array programming language. That is to say the fundamental data type in J is the array. J is the successor uh, language of APL, I have a little bit of experience with APL by way of GNU APL. Uh, back in 2017, he imported GNU APL into the ports tree, along with a font for use with APL, as APL uses lots of symbols not available on the standard ASCII keyboard. On the same day, in fact, only three minutes after importing GNU APL into the ports tree, he imported Kona into the ports tree. So Kona is an open source implementation of K, another array programming language, which is heavily influenced by APL. Unlike APL, K uses only the ASCII character set, making K a lot easier to program with the keyboards he has. Ah, yes, if you don't <laughs> produce the... Yeah, needing a special keyboard to, to write uh, programming languages is probably out there a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, especially uh, from the old days of APL. I guess that's not that easiest to just switch keyboards. Okay, so there was a third uh, array programming language from the APL family tree that he discovered and was interested in. So this is J. Uh, he tried, so just the, the, the letter J, nothing else. Uh, he tried porting J back at the time, but failed because it had a very complex build system. In comparison, GNU APL was a fairly straightforward port as it used the GNU autoconf system to configure GNU APL for OpenBSD, and the build just worked after that. Kona was even easier. It's all written in simple C and comes with a simple GNU makefile, no configuration needed. And so he put the failed attempt to port J into the OpenBSD work in progress repository and all but forgot about it. So it's more. It will just remain there. So then he talks about the J revival. And he came across a YouTube video that uh, was a review of solving a single programming challenge with 16 different languages. Uh, and J was among the list. The video maker is apparently a big fan of area programming languages. And it reminded him that uh, it should probably give porting J another try. And he's glad he did. In the interim years, either he has gotten better at porting software to OpenBSD, you know, or the J build system got a lot more pattern pl or platform independent and platform agnostic. Probably a combination of both. In any event, he grabbed a copy of his original J porting attempt and updated version numbers and other essentials and got to work. Then he talks a bit about uh, scoping out the new J build system. The, one of the first things he checked when making a new port is seeing what the build system is. Most of the time you have a commonly used and understood system, such as the plain old make, GNU autocon slash automake, CMake, Mison, Meson, or Scons. Whatever your feelings about these build systems are, the reality is the fact that they are well understood means that the OpenBSD port system can plug right into them. And if upstream has taken care to write good build files, you can often get things working with minimal headache. That's, yeah, if uh, that's a good starting point. Jay did not have such a system back when he first attempted a port, and it does not have one today. What Jay has today is a combination of shell scripts that control GNU make files. Okay, that's not so bad. Maybe even POSIX shell scripts no hidden GNU bash dependencies. Thank you, J-Team. Uh, but it does mean that he will need to write a custom do build routine for this port, since there's nothing that the port system natively understood 
and therefore the point system cannot abstract the work away. Then he has a section about his first pass. Um, so reading through some of the documentation that came with the source code, he discovered that if you'd like to build the entire J system, you can do so by executing the build underscore all shell script found in the make2 directory of the J source code. That's our clue for what our do-build routine should be. So that's in the make file. So that should go into the work source, in this case, the extracted sources in the make2 directory, and then run the build all shell script. Except that didn't work as hoped. The build errored out pretty quickly, informing me that it didn't know what operating system this is. And apparently it's not adventurous enough to try out OpenBSD and seeing what happens. All right, fine. Let's go find where it figures out what operating system this is. We're just going to lie and say, we're Linux. The magic location is in the file jsource slash js.h. There's an ifdef underscore underscore linux underscore underscore line that changed to ifdef openbsd. Ah, yes. Okay. Then he restarted the build. Oh, if only it were so easy. Uh, so to much of his amazement, the build system or the build ran to completing at this point. There's no, really? There's no way things could be that easy. It wasn't that easy, but it was pretty close. Okay. One thing that he noticed that we tend to not like in OpenBSD points is that the dash W error was in every compiler invocation line. That had to go. Additionally, it was hard-coded to oh, optimization level two as an optimization flag. Uh, he, he instead changed it to make whatever C flags the user has in the environment, which is the common solution to hard-coded optimization flags in OpenBSD ports. And additionally, he noticed that Jay wanted to use flags that bring in Intel AVX extensions. Ooh. But if we use those, then the package we create will not be usable on all AMD64 systems, as it seems that there is no runtime detection for CPU extensions, only build time options. So fortunately, the build system has a mechanism to disable the use of these extensions. Unfortunately, J still requires SSE3 instructions, so there are still a small handful of AMD64 machines that will not be able to use J, but that will only be a problem for the original AMD64 CPUs. So he may be wrong about J not having a runtime detection, but the documentation is not clear on the matter and the naming convention makes it even less clear. So if you know, let him know, and he'll update the port accordingly, and then uh, the installation part of J can proceed. And there's a section about that and some runtime testing he did. Uh, that's, but yeah, it seems not too difficult from <laughs> a glance over. So he wraps up with, uh, he was very happy with the porting effort. J turned out to be a moderately difficult port because it was uh, or its interesting build system and needed to disable the AVX extensions. But it was made a bit easier by being quick to compile. So recompiling due to a header change and the runtime fix was not time consuming. He was also happy that J is quite operating system agnostic, so long as you're willing to lie. Perhaps the J people will consider renaming Linux to Unix, since it seems there's a little, or there's little to nothing actually Linux specific there. And doing so may help encourage others to port and package J yeah, to other systems. In any event, thanks to the J team for making the build straightforward, if a little unconventional, and for making a useful and interesting programming language. If you're interested in array programming language or just want to try out something new, give J a spin. Cool. Very good uh, insight into making a port like this. Uh, next up, we have an article from uh, Ruben over at rubenerd.com comparing FreeBSD Geli and OpenZFS encrypted pools with keys. This is He's mentioned uh, many times how excited he was uh, for OpenZFS 2.0 arriving in FreeBSD 13, due in no small part to the built-in encryption capabilities. Uh, he'd used the closed source equivalent on the last Solaris and had many proof of concepts on the current branch, 
but hadn't actually used it for any real-world data yet. I also didn't feel as compelled to rush out and replace my Gelly encrypted volumes as I first thought. It still works and will for the foreseeable future. Uh, a shiny new set of drives for my home server finally gave me the kick in the proverbial posterior uh, to give it a shot and do some production data that uh, definitely isn't a Plex server full of anime. Uh, so this is that story. Dun dun. So the existing Gelly approach, so what he was doing before. Uh, we've always been able to encrypt ZFS on FreeBSD, albeit with an intermediate layer performing the encryption before the data hits the disk. Gelly was the most recent and accepted tool to achieve this, akin to the CGD uh, tool on NetBSD or Lux on Linux. It's proven well-tested, secure, and fast, just like my hat. Wait, what? <laughs> uh, there's an example of a typical encrypted ZFS volume using Gelly. We create a new GPT layout, label it. Uh, you'll be glad you did. Create a key pair, or just a key, sorry. There's just one, it's, it's symmetric. Uh, creating a new virtual Gelly encrypted block device. So you get, uh, you have, you know, dev slash foo. And then once you set up the encryption, you have dev dot foo or dev slash foo dot ELI, which will be um, the device you open. And when you write to it, it'll get encrypted and written to the actual dev foo. And then we can put our ZFS pool on top of that. Now, in the final step, we reference the virtual encrypted device. So we do gpart create and label our disk, uh, add a FreeBSD ZFS partition to it generate uh, a key, do Gelly init uh, to uh, label a disk for encryption. We set our type and so on. Then we can attach to it and that will make dev slash whatever.eli, which will allow you to access the, the plain text and write to it and so on. Then you can zpool create with that.eli device and now you have a pool living on top of Gelly. Uh, so this uses a plain disk, but you could also do it on top of iSCSI or Hast or whatever else you might want to do. The nice thing about Geom, the storage abstraction layer in FreeBSD, is that it's composable. You can stack however you want. Um, but the important thing here is you're encrypting the entire partition beneath ZFS. Uh, so Gelly is a device uh, and file system agnostic, and ZFS is basically unaware that it's operating on top of this virtual device that's doing the encryption. This may still be preferable in some circumstances, uh, which we'll get to in a moment. Yeah, like what he's alluding to is ZFS's file system encryption only encrypts the file data and some of the metadata. The ZFS information, like the what data sets there are and so on, is not encrypted uh, because ZFS needs to be able to work and list all your data sets and then find out which ones there are to let you decrypt them and so on, since each data set can have its own separate encryption key if you want. So there are a bunch of parts of ZFS that don't get encrypted if you use ZFS encryption. So if you just want to encrypt everything, Gelly is still the right answer. But if you want to be able to encrypt some data sets and not others, or have some data sets have a different key than others, uh, then ZFS's encryption is very interesting. So by contrast, OpenZFS's native encryption operates at the data set level, negating the need for Gelly on the device, uh, and so on. Now what's even cooler is that all of ZFS's data integrity, duplication, compression, exports, etc., can operate on these encrypted data sets even when they're not uh, imported or mounted. Um, so yeah, one of the big things about the way ZFS encryption works is because you can have different keys for different data sets, you can unload the key for a data set that will unmount it and it won't be usable, but the data is still there. And if you have to replace a failed drive or do a scrub, that can still happen and keep the data even without the encryption key. So it means that 
you know, doing a drive replacement doesn't require you to load all the encryption keys. So it means the storage administrator doesn't have to have the keys for all of the data sets or any of the data sets. Mm. Uh, and so that has a lot of advantages. So this time we can just, again, do the G part steps and create a partition, but instead of feeding that uh, FreeBSD-ZFS partition into Geli, we can just give it directly to ZFS. And then you create a new data set and you do ZFS create and you set encryption equals on, key format equals which type you want. Uh, you can have it as a, a passphrase that you enter or a raw key or a hex key. Uh, and then the key location, you can either ask, you know, prompt me for the password to type it interactively, or here's a file where it is. Uh, and mm. at some point, there will also be support uh, in the future for using like libfetch or libcurl or whatever to give it a URL so it could uh, talk to some kind of mediator in order to load the encryption keys. Yeah, and the and key must not set. reside on the drive that you're encrypting, right? Yeah, you, you, uh, otherwise... <laughs> the key has to be somewhere where you can access it when the file system isn't mounted, yes. so yeah. uh, And, you know, if you put it somewhere not encrypted on the pool, then it's not very good protection for your pool, is it? If the, mm. the key to encrypt this one data set just lives in some other data set that's not encrypted. Uh, so yeah, you do want to be careful about how you store the keys. Uh, or you can use a passphrase, but you probably also want something there. It's not going to... Uh, require you to go and type in a bunch of passwords every time you reboot the machine. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a couple of gotchas. He said, uh, I'd initially assumed that using the keys would result in the ZFS dataset auto-mounting when the pool is imported, which is not the case. Even if their uh, keys are available, you must import them first using the ZFS dataset or, or before the data ZFS dataset is mounted. You can do that by, uh, when you do zpool import, you can pass the dash L flag or you can do ZFS load dash key dash A and it will load all the keys. Uh, or I think if you do ZFS mount, there's a, a flag to make it load the keys. Uh, actually in FreeBSD's current, there's a, a new script that actually allows you to configure auto loading keys as a new rc.d service. And it will mm -hmm. also do things like uh, timeout. So if it does end up, end up hitting a password prompt, after a couple of seconds, it will cancel it and continue booting instead of leaving your server hung halfway through boot, waiting for somebody to type in a key. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Otherwise, no one can get to the data center and <laughs> type it in there and the server is hanging. Yeah, times like you, these. You don't want to be in kind of like the, the Facebook situation. The other yeah, day, right? Where, I was getting to that. <laughs> um, you need to, to go inside to reprogram the router, but you can't open the door because your access card needs to talk to the router to get to the machine that says whether you're allowed to get in the building or not. Mm -hmm. uh, so considerations, as I alluded to above, or as Rubiner did, uh, there are a couple of caveats. Gelly encrypts everything that goes to the disk, whereas OpenZFS only encrypts the actual data sets where you set encryption on, and it only encrypts the actual user data. So the contents of your files are encrypted, the names of your files are encrypted, but the names of the ZFS data sets and things like that. So all the stuff you do with the ZFS and zpool command are not encrypted only the file system contents, what you do when like data you write to it and the files you create, those are encrypted, but the ZFS admin stuff is not. And that's part of the design. That's so that you can, for example, rename, you can do ZFS replication without the encryption key loaded. Uh, so you can just say, here's a data set, it's encrypted. I don't even have the key. I just want to send a copy of it to this other machine. You can do that. Uh, hmm. And you wouldn't be able to if if the metadata was encrypted. Rubinerd also says purely speculation on his part, but I also think there'd be a chance of plausible deniability in a device that's been uh, completely encrypted with Geli, other than 
the string geom colon colon eli at the end there's not really any way to tell what it is other than a bunch of random looking text just as many devices that use uh, whole derived encryption by contrast opens out of its data set metadata makes it obvious that there's some encrypted data there uh, and information about how it's encrypted might also be there just not the uh, and actually the master key is there it's just encrypted with a user key uh, and so on yeah overall uh as an item of clothing open slivers sorry he has a bunch of great jokes in here like uh <laughs> earlier there was one it was just like by contrast is a phrase with two words and then goes on with sense and then this one here at the end is overall is an item of clothing <laughs> um OpenZFS encryption makes the system administrator's life easier and those caveats don't concern me for how i store my data it'll be using it uh, for everything going forward and he has a shout out to my and the kyle niesel's freebsd journal article from last year that's a great resource on how Gelly and uh, ZFS encryption differ, and also just some interesting bits about how ZFS encryption is implemented and how it was made to be uh, to fit into the existing on-disk format in ZFS to not require massive changes. Uh, he also found Jim Sulter's article useful uh, on the introduction to ZFS and also some of the key management stuff. Yep. And then he's got a little disclaimer at the bottom. You know, cryptography is critical to get right, and it's not worth doing. Uh, or it's not worth doing at all. Uh, always read and follow the official documentation in, rather than some random person's blog, even if the blog has a cute anime mascot and was written by someone with the best intentions and an awesome hat. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I mean, crypto is crypto. I mean, now that you can crypt your uh, data sets, it doesn't mean you have to, but if you want the extra security, it's there. Just make sure that you uh, get back to your readable data one, at one point. Uh, all right, let's jump into our news roundup this week. And we have a question here. What is FreeBSD actually? Think again. Uh, so Pro Bono on Medium.com writes this. And it goes, recently there was a challenge on Twitter to describe FreeBSD in three words only. Wasn't that from Clara? Yep. Could have been, yeah. So an operating system, right? Berkeley software distribution, literally. Dating back to early Unix and powers macOS and the iPhone. That's what I always mentally filed FreeBSD under but also as something that still requires you to use cryptic command line and to configure stuff. It's not cryptic. Um, <laughs> like the graphical desktop plug and play and live ISOs that just work, never had happened. Maybe I was wrong all along. Uh, when I think of an operating system, I think of Windows, Mac OS, or Ubuntu style Linux. And naturally that was the standard I kept measuring FreeBSD against. In comparison, FreeBSD felt so much more cryptic and complicated. I always wondered why that was. So community non-graphical Unix is what I wrote. Uh, oh, here are the, the Clara links here in the, um, in the linked article. When I read through the answers to the FreeBSD in three words questions, it finally dawned on me. So Patrick M. Hausen, for example, writes infrastructure, comma, not product. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's very apt. Infrastructure, not product. Interesting way to look at it. In the Linux world, many distributions are based on Debian, including the arguably most popular one of the desk or on the desktop, Ubuntu. So in a way, FreeBSD is like Debian if it was simply a building kit for other distributions. It is not the Ubuntu desktop live ISO that made Ubuntu so popular and the experience I'm after, pop it into a computer and be able to use it as a desktop machine. Infrastructure, not product. Is that a good thing? 
My initial reaction would be no. For many years, I looked at FreeBSD and always decided to test it once, then have a desktop live ISO like Ubuntu I will try out, uh, which never happened. Yes, variants of it like TrueOS, DesktopBSD, FuryBSD came and went, and uh, some are still around like GhostBSD and NomadBSD, and new ones like my own Hello system are coming up, but are they really FreeBSD? Places like uh, FreeBSD forums say no, and don't want to support them. Infrastructure, not product. Is that really a bad thing? After all, wouldn't it be a good thing to have an official FreeBSD desktop live ISO? Turns out, the issue goes deeper than that. Unlike Linux distributions, FreeBSD draws a strict line between the core operating system, the base.txz, and what is thought as the packaged third-party software, the ports and packages that live under user local. Core operating system is BSD licensed and developed as a fully integrated operating system by the FreeBSD team whereas the rest happens to run on FreeBSD, but is essentially mostly third-party software, which may or may not agree with the FreeBSD objectives. So you, uh, so it would be nice to have at least a very smart, minimal graphical environment as part of the FreeBSD core operating system. Operating systems like Haiku and Serenity OS see graphics as an integral part of the core operating system. FreeBSD does not. Uh, then it dawned him again by Michael Dexter's answers to the question. So Michael's answer was, uh, own the stack. So own the stack. That is certainly a good thing in an aspect I really like. No one is following some hidden agenda to force certain stack elements, like unwelcome technology upon users, such as SE Linux, SystemD, GTK, GNOME, Wayland, Pipewire, Flatpak, and so on. And I like FreeBSD for that. So maybe we should really come to embrace that FreeBSD wants to be more like a toolkit that enables third parties, you and me, to build the end user experiences we like, rather than the ready-made operating system like Windows, macOS, or Ubuntu-style Linux. And in fact, it is very good at that. It allows us to build a Hello System user experience exactly to our liking. And so, yeah, there's a little graphic here about the Hello System desktop, in case you haven't seen it. Maybe FreeBSD, so this is in all caps here, maybe FreeBSD should position itself as a toolkit for building operating systems rather than an operating system. I think it would have helped me understand it better. Yeah, I think George Neville Neal refers to that uh, a lot too, as, as a toolkit. Well, yeah, so. in particular, it's it's you know, uh, a set of Lego with a whole bunch of the instruction booklets and you can you turn it into this thing or that thing or the other thing. And, you know, you can do whatever you want with it. I think there is a bit of a, a difference between, you know, an operating system doesn't necessarily mean a desktop operating system. You know, a lot of the use cases for FreeBSD or even a lot of the deployments of Ubuntu note have a screen uh, and don't end up running any of the graphical stuff. And so I wouldn't say that something that doesn't have a graphical interface is not an operating system, but yes, it's not a desktop operating system. Yeah, that's important to distinguish here. So he closes with, but somehow I think it's still sad that graphics is completely absent from the FreeBSD core operating system, at least the Windows server and graphics drivers. What do you think? Well, the graphics drivers are, well, they're kept in ports because it allows us to have a, a different update cadence than, uh, with the yeah, uh, base or whatever. But mm -hmm. as far as the Windows Server stuff is like, if it's just using the other one that other people use too or whatever, is it really that much a part of the operating system? I don't know. Um, there are definitely more deployments of FreeBSD that don't want graphics than there are that want graphics. I'm not saying that graphics isn't a valid use case though. Yeah, we always discuss it within the project, what, what should be in the base system, what shouldn't be there, what is essential to every user versus just this, uh, the graphics people versus the you know embedded users versus the server uh right types. well and the, the, even right. that you know we have 
source.confidence knob so that you can build FreeBSD with less of the stuff that's included by default even. So, you know, we don't have to only consider the embedded cases for some of this. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah. It's a toolkit. Some people build a castle out of it and some people a rocket ship and the other people just uh, yeah. a little well, house. The thing is, <laughs> you know, when you compare it to something like Ubuntu, when you sit down at a FreeBSD, you have the option of installing like 60 different desktop environments. Who gets to pick which one is going to be the default? Like that's you have to try where a lot we kind of, them, of get yeah. back to that idea of, of Debian versus Ubuntu is somebody makes a distro uh, that has an opinion, right? And that's why GhostBSD wanted this thing and the other BSD wanted the other one. And then that's how you get those. Mm. Um, you know, I, I started a patch a while back to, you know, have the installer at the end just say, oh, would you like me to install KDE and Firefox for you so that you can, you know, browse the internet on this. Mm. But it mostly came down to it's like trying to add some options, but not too many options. And then how do we make sure these configurations stay working? And, oh, now everybody wants this one and the other one and another one and it's like well we don't want the list to get too long or it's just confusing the user you know in particular one of the things that previous installation was already bad at was asking people the answer to a question that they don't know the answer to you know it's like pick one of these it's like i don't know what any of those are <laughs> yeah that's true but yeah as, as, as soon as you start with that you're already starting your own desktop distribution like alan bsd this is then you start maintaining that and because you need more tools and it's 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 good that people have done that outside of the core freebsd um and then people can say okay i want a graphics desktop and i don't want to mess with the standard freebsd i want to have a desktop right away and then they can grab the mentioned desktop distributions yeah but you know when you're making a, a web server or a storage server it's like no i don't want any of that graphical stuff using up any of my resources yeah it's it's extra packages that uh, have also be maintained and updated. So yeah, it's always that question whether uh, yeah uh, maybe too much of it is that FreeBSD kind of sticks to this idea of what an operating system was when FreeBSD started, which was you know getting close to thirty years ago now. Yeah. Um, because you know if you really think back to what was included in in other operating systems at the time, like even windows uh back then you know you got an operating system and yes it happened to have some graphics but it didn't have any programs mm -hmm. right you had like calculator and character map and solitaire uh, uh, yeah people just installed uh, it for solitaire you you couldn't do much with it out of the box and then you added the third-party software kind of like you used to do with windows now you know everything's got a store built into it or whatever and it's quite a bit different but mm. well yeah, it made probably the graphics makes it more approachable for J random normal user, not IT nerd. Uh, but yeah, it is what it is. Let's move on. Uh, we have in another story OpenBSD's pledge and unveil from Python. Yeah, uh, so this is a post by Chris Wellens about uh, using these new things from Python. So he says, years ago, uh, OpenBSD gained two new security system calls pledge and unveil. Uh, in both an application surrenders capabilities at runtime, the idea is to perform the initialization as usual with all your permissions, then drop those capabilities before uh, handling any untrusted input uh, and limiting any unwanted side effects. This feature is applicable even when uh, type safety isn't an issue, such as Python, where a program might still be tricked into accessing sensitive files or making network connections when it shouldn't. So how can a Python program access these systems calls? As discussed previously, 
It's quite easy to access the C APIs from Python using things like C types, uh, and there is no exception, or this is no exception. In this article, I show how to do it and have the full source code uh, over in a openbsd.py file. So he's chosen a couple of uh, extra constraints as well. As extra safety features, unnecessary for correctness, attempts to call these functions on systems where they do not exist will silently do nothing as though they had succeeded. Um, they're provided as a best effort uh, since only OpenBSD has these, uh, whereas normally you'd want to do the opposite and, and fail. Uh, but, you know, since it's not available on most operating systems, this made more sense. Uh, systems other than OpenBSD may support uh, these functions now or in the future, and it would be nice to automatically make use of them when available. This means no checking for OpenBSD specifically, but instead feature sniffing through the presence of these functions. Uh, the interfaces should be Pythonic, as though they were implemented in Python itself, so they should raise exceptions on errors and accept strings since they're more convenient than bytes. So for reference, the function prototype uh, with pledge is a string of promises and a string of exec promises, and then unveil is a path and then a string of permissions. Uh, and they note that the string-oriented interface in pledge makes this a whole lot easier to implement. Uh, so finding the functions. The first step is to grab functions through c-types. So we came up with uh, a way to do that. Uh, and he has, you know, pledge tries to call out to the pledge system call and set it up. And then if that doesn't work, uh, there's an exception, then it just sets pledge to null. Catching a broad exception here isn't great, but it's the best way we can be sure uh, since the documentation is incomplete. From this block, I've uh, seen type error, attribute error, file not found error, OS error, and a bunch of others. So uh, just grabbing every exception made it more uh, practical. So then to make the Pythonic wrappers, the next and final step is to wrap these low-level calls in an interface that hides their C nature from the Python. Python strings must be encoded to bytes before they can be passed to the C functions. Rather than making the caller worry about this, We'll pass them uh, the friendly strings and have the wrapper do the conversion for us. Either may also be null, so none is allowed here. So they define a pledge Python uh, function, and you have a string of promises and, and a string of uh, exec, uh, exec promises. If um, the pledge primitive is not available, then it just returns uh, immediately. But if it is there, then it passes those. Uh, it encodes those strings into C strings and passes them to the pledge system call. Then if there's an, uh, it grabs the error message and creates uh, an exception. So unveil works a little differently since the first argument is a path and Python functions that accept paths such as open uh, generally accept either strings or bytes. Uh, on Unix-like systems, paths are fundamentally a byte string and not necessarily Unicode. So it's necessary to accept bytes since strings are nearly always more convenient but then we have to make sure the function will take both. And so uh, the path, which is a union of a string, bytes, or none, and then uh, permissions, which is an optional string. Uh, then it encodes the things correctly and calls the system call, and then raises an exception if it didn't work. So now to try it out, they define a new function where they try to open a file and then print a message if it worked. Uh, and we see that when we run that, it says you've been hacked. Then they add uh, some unveil restrictions where they say, you know, you're only allowed to read user share and not anything else. And then when they try to call open now, they will get the exception uh, saying that, you know, this has been blocked by unveil. Then they do the same thing for pledge. We declare what abilities we'd like to keep by supplying a list of promises, pledging to use only those attributes going forward, or those abilities going forward. 
A common case is uh, standard I.O. Uh, promise, which allows reading and writing to open files, but not opening new files. A program might want its log file or open its log file and then drop the ability to open new files while still retaining the ability to write to those existing open files. Uh, and they also check their error processing. So if they ask for a, if they pledge to a promise that doesn't exist, they get invalid argument. But if they do the right thing, then uh, it works as expected. So when they pledge to only use standard I.O. and then try to open a file, they get abort trap core dumped so they can figure out what went wrong. But when they uh, allow standard I.O. and errors, uh, then they get the expected output. Uh, the core dump isn't going to be much help to a Python program, so you probably always want to use uh, the, the promise that makes it uh, return an error instead of uh, core dumping. In general, you need to be extra careful about pledge in complex runtimes like Python's, which may uh, reasonably need to do many arbitrary undocumented things at a time. So yeah, the problem with scripting languages is, you know, you're, you're doing what you're doing, but it also needs to do whatever it has to do. Or like, it might read some of its config files on, on startup, which is fine, but it might also try to do something in reaction to something you do. Uh, and if it, you know, lazy loads some extra Python code or something, it's going to end up opening a file uh, that you didn't expect. And then that will cause uh, errors. Hmm. Yeah. Good. So let's jump right into the beastie bits this week. We have a couple of things collected for you. And the first one is Hibernate Time Reduced. Uh, this is on unletly.org, which means OpenBSD. And Theodorat uh, committed a change which significantly reduces the Hibernate time on machines with larger amounts of RAM. And the commit message reads, increase Hibernate write-out speed a little. Modern machines have vast tracks of unused memory and the empty space RLE scanner, UVM underscore page underscore RLE, would rescan for empty space needlessly wasting excessive CPU time. A 16 gig machine, 100 seconds goes to 9 seconds. Well, that's uh, quite a significant... Yeah. And for... 40 gigs machine uh, of 325 seconds goes down to 28 seconds with Catenis, uh yeah, approval. And Michael Larkin, we're always happy to hear good news. Yeah. Yeah. So the RLE is run length encoding. It's basically saying, oh, the next X bytes are all zeros. Although with the gains like that, I almost wonder about feeding it into a light compression algorithm like LZ4. To reduce them. To, like because that will uh, obviously compress all the zeros but it might also compress the other stuff decently and being lz4 it doesn't use a lot of cpu mm -hmm. and it can be interesting too yeah. okay uh, we stay with uh undeadly there's also the open rsync which gains uh include and exclude support Ooh, that was one of the big missing things yeah uh, Claudia Yeager has committed support for simple include and exclude cases in open rsync so remember OpenBSD is building an open version of rsync or an a better version and so that got now a dash dash exclude and exclude file and dash dash include and include file it currently only simple includes and excludes work the advanced filters introduced later in rsync are not implemented it is unclear if the per directory filters are something we want to implement this requires more modern protocols which open rsync is not able to handle right now this adds a special matching function to allow the star star match which behaves mostly like rsync's version with the exception of how bad the bracket patterns are expanded. For bad patterns, open rsync follows more uh, fn match behaves and not the somewhat strange rsync behavior. Not perfect, but committing now so people can test and provide feedback. Nice. Definitely interested in seeing that. Yeah. Uh, so next up, we have some uh, pictures from our producer, uh, JT. And he says, this weekend I was able to save uh, a piece of history, a sun machine from 1988. It's in rough shape externally and definitely needs 
a very thorough cleaning of, well, just about everything. But the internal components mostly look to be in good shape. And he's got a bunch of pictures of this giant sun machine. And At one point, he just opens a, a museum. That's just a given. Yeah, uh, and that looks like a tape <laughs> reel there. And uh, uh. there are a lot of very large connectors on the back that are just like some of those like 25 pin or something like that. And just lots and lots of pins and lots of very old looking uh, boards with they had a lot of chips on them. Yes, lots of rows and rows of chips. Although that one looks like it just got like three AMD big square chips in the bottom there. Sometimes, or somehow it looks like an, you know, um, a train station uh, <laughs> from above, from an aerial view. <laughs> like a lot of trains sitting there waiting for the cargo. Um, but yeah. Oh well, yeah, it's great that uh, he has such a nice hobby collecting these old computers that would normally go to the landfill. Um, next thing we have is Duas comes to Midnight BSD. No, it's just uh, it's in the official README now that you can uh, ah, yes. install it and it works properly. Mm -hmm. But the instructions to get it running, and so you can uh, make use of that in other systems now. Yep. Uh, then we have a gist here from Kubes about... Uh, hardening FreeBSD's SSH. Uh, so basically based on ssh-audit.com describes how to apply those extra changes to FreeBSD's SSH. So you can install ssh-audit and be able to use it. Uh, and we can see here, they're going to uh, audit the localhost SSHD and get an idea of what's going on there. And we can see that, uh, you know, they Re, um, remove a bunch of their host keys and disable some of the keys they don't want, like DSA, uh, ECDSA, uh, and just enable the good ones like ED25519, then run SSHD keygen uh, and update that. And then they're also uh, using awk on the moduli file to only filter out the keys that are at least uh, 3071 bits. Uh, so any of the smaller moduli get removed uh, and disable more of the key types we don't want in the sshd underscore config and uh you know restrict uh the key exchange ciphers and mac algorithms and so on uh to make sense with what the ssh audit project suggests then restart your sshd and run ssh audit again and you should see uh, a lot of improvement there mm -hmm. yeah very good then we have the link uh, to Peter Hanstein's Open SSA, uh, Open SSH, <laughs> Open BSD 6.8 and U. So these were his slides uh, he presented, and so if you want to look at them, he has them linked on his homepage. Yep. Thank you, Peter. And then uh, another one we have here, uh, Open BSD has announced that uh, with a recent commit, uh, the SCP command now uses SFTP protocol by default rather than its own separate protocol. This I think is related to the vulnerabilities that were found in SCP uh, previously. Yep. But yeah, so um, this will use the SFTP protocol by default. The original protocol remains available by setting the capital O uh, flag um, to fall back to the old one. Uh, note that tilde user slash prefix pass in SFTP mode require a protocol extension has only been available since OpenSSH version 8.7 and later. Mm -hmm. uh, SFTP also offers more predictable file name handling and does not require uh, the glob patterns uh, via the shell on the row side. You can do it internally, which is much safer. Yep. So 
better to use that. Then the uh, FreeBSD uh, security officer wants to let us know that FreeBSD 11.4 is at its end of life as of September 30. So the stable 11 branch will reach end of life and is no longer supported by the FreeBSD security team. Please update. Yeah, uh, FreeBSD 11 was five years ago now. Uh, and so it's over. Yeah. All of my machines have I've been up to 12 or 13 for quite a while now. Uh, and it's been there's so much new stuff in ZFS that it didn't make sense to try to stick around on 11. Yeah, it's and it's, the software update is fairly smooth. And with boot environments, you can always go back if disaster strikes, if you do something wrong there, if you're running ZFS. <laughs> and uh, FreeBSD 12.3 has been announced. It's uh, in the works and mm -hmm. should come out around the beginning of December. And so, but that's a small minor update from 12.2 so you should upgrade to 12.2 now and then you can just go straight to 12.3 as another small step when that happens uh and then once the 12.3 release cycle is finished uh early next year we should see the 13.1 cycle start oh yeah that's also interesting yeah and then you know looking at it in general uh you might decide to go straight to 13 just because you know there's only about two years left on the 12 branch before it also reaches its end of life yeah and the 13 you have at least five years uh well four and a bit now but yeah. is it four yeah okay well, it'd be five years from when it came out in april-ish of this year right yeah so four okay um speaking of freebsd we have uh picked a commit from um, alexander moten here about the schedule e the default scheduler in freebsd and he improved the long-term load balancer there so before this change, the commit message says, a long-term load balancer was unable to migrate running threads only once waiting on the run queues. But with the growing number of CPU cores, it is quite typical now for systems to not have many waiting threads. But at the same time, uh, if due to some coincidence, two long-running CPU-bound threads ended up sharing same the same physical CPU core, they could uh, suffer from the SMT penalty indefinitely and the load balancer couldn't help. So he improved that by teaching the load balancer to hint the running threads to migrate by marking them with TDF underscore need reschedule and need TDF uh, pick CPU flag, making the sket underscore CPU uh, pick CPU to search for better CPU later when it is convenient. That fixed the CPU search logic when balancing to limit round robin migrations in case of almost equal load to the group of physical cores. The previous code balances threads across all the system. Uh, that could be pretty bad for, ca for caches and the NUMA affinity, while additional fairness was all, uh, almost invisible, diminishing with number of cores in the group. So that is good to have. And if you're mm -hmm. interested in the code specifics, it's linked as well. So we talked all about this. Uh, cool stuff that we have uh, in terms of description here, but we should mention that our sponsor Tarsnap also does great things in terms of crypto and keeping your data secure by making backups the proper way. And that is crypting it locally before it reaches any other system. So locally, the data that you're going to backup is first segmented, deduplicated, that's making the data smaller. And then a key is used, your personal key that never leaves your machine, uh, hopefully, uh, will encrypt the data on your lo local machine and then the only the encrypted blocks of what is remaining will go into Amazon's AWS cloud on the Tarsnap servers and sits there and waits until you need them back one day and you can do the reverse if you still have the key unencrypted and then restore the files that you have. So this is the Tarsnap backup philosophy and it's very cheap so you can even 
backup gigabytes of data without going bankrupt. It's a pay-as-you-go model. So you start with like $5 or $10, depending on how much data you want to backup. And they will uh, then deduce that based on the amount of data that you backup regularly and the data that sits on the Amazon cloud already. And then one day, if uh, your account storage goes down, then they will send you an email, of course, a couple days before. So in case it's, uh, <laughs> that you have time to pick out your credit card and recharge your account, but it's fairly uh, cheap and, and good to um, to have that Tarsnap backup in the cloud. So try it out because if you are a Unix guy and you know Tar, then Tarsnap is just a handy addition on it. And so you will be rightly familiar with the command line utility and the, the syntax will be very familiar to you. There's also plenty of documentation out there. So for example, you can do a dry run and see how much would this actually cost or how much can uh, Tarsnap reduce this amount of files. So you can make a better guess how much it would cost. And if you are more into the GUI environment, then you can download also third-party clients that people have written to do this uh, graphically. Plenty of uh, systems support Tarsnap, BSDs, Linuxes, the Mac OS's uh, sequence, or the Microsoft, uh, the Unix, the Linux subsystem for Microsoft. There's also a book by Michael W. Lucas, Tarsnap Mastery, in case you want to read it before uh, you use Tarsnap, uh, and then you are uh, in the know about what it can do. So check out Tarsnap and uh, get backing up your files. All right, thanks for listening, and uh, remember our little. Uh, probably Christmas thing we're going to do, you interviewing us. So send us any questions that you have to feedback at bsdnow.tv that you always wanted to know about us or from us. And then we'll, uh, once we have enough of those, we will collect them and do a special Ask the Moderators uh, BSD Now. Yeah, so that'll probably be all four of us uh, together for once. Uh, oh, yeah. So we're looking forward to having all of your questions uh, for us to answer. Mm -hmm. All right, then you will have us next week again with a fresh episode.